this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering four conversations from Season 3, Episode 26, our discussion of emerging insights about the best practices for using NITs in clinical trials. This conversation starts with Quentin Anstey sharing the five key takeaways he developed while preparing recent talks for the Liver Forum and the ICFL meeting in Vienna. When he finishes, Jorn Schottenberg and Stephen Harrison note that FIB4 is a diagnostic marker rather than a response marker. As Stephen adds, that could also be said for VCTE in most cases. Quentin agrees. Drives home the point that while a positive six-month FIB4 response is a good thing, it should not be taken as proof of fibrosis change, given that a drug can produce that same FIB4 response in two weeks, but likely not a fibrosis change in two weeks. The conversation ends with the group agreeing with Stephen's suggestion that the question might be when to use a particular tool to test for response in a particular patient. This conversation, based on high-profile talks Quentin Anstey gave at two recent events, represents leading-edge thinking about the use of NITs in clinical trials. All of us found the entire discussion challenging and exhilarating, and I hope you do too. So, sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Quentin and I decided about two months ago, I guess, that this was the first week he was available to come join us on the podcast, and we would figure out exactly what to do when we got closer to it. We sat down last Thursday and came up with what I think is really an interesting topic, which generally is to take a look at what we're learning about best practices and use of non-invasive tests in clinical trials and other issues. Quentin's given a couple of talks on this recently, and he'll review some of that. And then the purpose of this session is really for all of us to kind of kick around these ideas and make sense out of them, or make different kinds of sense out of them, and to kind of poke and prod and see what we find. So, Quentin, Floor is yours. Quentin Anstey. Thanks, Roger. So I think I think this is it's going to be a great topic to talk about. It, it's the idea about what have we learned regarding response biomarkers from the drug trials. And really, as, as you said, I've, I've given a couple of lectures, one at the Liver Forum and one at the ICFL conference in Vienna recently, touching on this subject. And I think there are about five key takeaways that we've learned from the trials so far. What I'd like to do is put them out there and hear what you and Stephen and Jean and Louise think about those, because they're just concepts that are forming rather than totally formed ideas. And it'd be really good to have that sort of dialogue about them and see see what we can think. The first one I'm going to go through quite quickly, because we've covered it a lot on the Nash Tsunami podcast before. So the first thing I think one can say is that histological trial endpoints, and especially those related to loss of ballooning, are not sufficiently robust, particularly that idea of loss of ballooning, Nash resolution when it's founded on the complete absence of ballooning. I think that's a an endpoint that we're all realizing now is building a house on the sand to a certain extent. But there were a few other things that I thought were possibly also worth exploring. So the next one that I, I put out there is the idea that rapidly attaining an NIT response threshold is not necessarily a guarantee of early efficacy. There are a couple of examples of that I put out. So if we think about the, the most obvious one, which is an ALT drop, and you remember from the Flint study, there was the concept of a 17-unit ALT drop uh, as a marker of early response. But when you actually dig deeper into even that original Flint data, what you see is that the positive predictive value of that is depending on which histological feature you're looking at, somewhere between about 20% and 50%. So you, you could argue it's, it's very useful because you've gone from not knowing whether the drug works at all to bringing it within the range of a coin toss. And that is not nothing, but it's still wrong to assume that it's a guarantee of efficacy. And the same applies to a certain extent to MRI PDFF. Once again, these are really useful tools. So this isn't about the fact we need to move away from them or anything along those lines. It's just 
to consider how we interpret them and what we read into them. The next thing I was going to float, and I'll I'll go through them very quickly and then maybe we can tear them apart one at a time, is the idea that simple indirect biomarker panels like FIB4 really need to be interpreted with caution. So again, if we look at what we've learned from a number of trials, and you know, you could say this about the Regenerate study, you could say it about NGM 282, uh, Aldeferon, and a number of the others, you see very rapid, very early ALT drops, usually within the space of a couple of weeks. And then the ALT levels plateau after that. And then six months down the line, we calculate the FIB4 score and say, oh, look, it's, it's lower. Therefore, there must have been a fibrosis improvement. And of course, you probably could have got exactly the same FIB4 score at about three weeks in. And I don't think we'd claim that all the fibrosis is resolved at that point. So again, it's just about how we interpret the endpoint. A couple of more positive concepts. The next one is the idea that we don't have a single gold standard test. Histology, non-invasives, nothing is perfect. So what we need to do is take a more holistic view of interpreting them. So I think more and more we need to see those waterfall plots, the number of individuals who've regressed, and also the number of individuals who've progressed in each treatment arm. So you can balance that. And we need to start picking, say, three biomarkers. A wet biomarker, maybe the ELF test, a physical biomarker such as VCTE or MR elastography, and then a histological biomarker. And we need to start plotting Venn diagrams and look at the commonality with them, because the cases where you're improving all three of those, I think we can have a very high degree of confidence that it's moving. Now, of course, that's a very conservative threshold, and we need to think about how we interpret it, but it's also a very robust threshold. And then my final, my fifth and final point is just thinking about histology for a moment. Why do we like histology? Well, because when you do a biopsy, you always report steatosis, inflammation, ballooning, and fibrosis. And you can't do a biopsy study and only present two of those because the other two didn't improve or match what you wanted to see. Whereas with biomarkers, we can measure as many as we like and then only report the one or two which is positive. And so I think as a field, we need to come together and select a defined handful of biomarkers that we agree to always include in trials and always report. So those are my five thoughts. Each one of them is slightly unformed, and it'd be great to talk about them and find out where the flaws in the arguments are. Jörn Schattenberg. Good point. Uh, Quentin, let me follow up and make a statement or maybe ask you a question. I think you commented on FIB4 and the ALT decline, making this something that happens early in the trial and it's difficult to assess down the road. So I think one very important statement is that FIB4 is a diagnostic biomarker and not one that should be used repetitively, in particular in longer trial durations and not as a response biomarker. So it's something we could would agree on. So I think that's where I'm coming at it from, John, exactly that. Stephen Harrison. First of all, I, I will just respond to your comment, Jorn. If you go back to where FIB4 was originally used, it wasn't even designed for fatty liver. Right? It was designed for HIV co-infection with hepatitis C because all liver disease that gets better if there's so the way in our clinical practice the way we define improvement in liver disease is when we have an elevated ALT and we normalize it so every time you normalize an abnormal ALT you should improve fib4 i mean i agree with you it's more of a diagnostic than it is something that we can follow over time you could arguably say the same thing for vcte except i think where they may have a role if the data is mined appropriately, is in a responder analysis such that you predict, you 
a priori say you have to have an X percentage change in FIB4 or an X percentage change or a specific kilopascal change to be in the responder cohort. At the end of the day, that's what patients care about most, right? They don't care that 40% of the people in this population that had a response improved FIB4. They want to know, in my particular case, if I went from a FIB4 of 2.67 and I dropped it to 2.0, did did that 0.67 change equate to something that is meaningful to me. And that's what we call a responder analysis. And I think that's different than just saying the p-value changed for FIB4 from pre to post. So maybe it's taking the same thing and just twisting it around a little bit to say, I'm not sure that we can't use it as a prognostic tool or as a measure of therapeutic efficacy. But the way we currently do it, I don't think is necessarily the most appropriate way. So I think you touched on something really important there. And, and thank you for saying that, Stephen, because undoubtedly, if a fib force drops, that's not a bad thing. That, that's a good sign because you're taking through a range of biologically relevant features and you're showing an improvement. What I think I'm saying and what we're seeing from some of these studies is that it doesn't necessarily mean that fibrosis is improved. So the concept fib 4 picks F3 and F4 disease, FIB4 drops, therefore you haven't got F3 and F4 disease. When we're seeing the biochemical changes that drive a FIB4 improvement happening within days of starting a new compound, I think it's very unlikely that it's reflecting a fibrotic improvement so quickly. Yeah, I completely agree. The same thing for Fibroscan, right? We take a a patient with hepatitis C that has a fiber scan of 15, I go virus negative at 12 weeks, I bring it back into fiber scan 7. Well, I didn't suddenly just take that patient from F3 to F0 disease in 12 weeks. There's clearly an inflammatory component. I really liked your comment, your point too, where you said rapidly obtaining an NIT threshold, interpret with caution. And maybe I paraphrase that a bit, but I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I wonder if we should begin to look at this as should it be early change, late change, sustained change? And it's interesting. If you look at, at the injectables, the hormones, the FGF19s and the 21s, universally, with the exception of BMS, Peg Belferman, we look at kind of the newer ones. So Afruxafermin, Pagosafermin, for sure those two, where we have rapid and sustained drops in ALT, that, that is different than, say, a THR beta that is a little bit more slow to see a change in ALT. And in fact, right out of the gate, it, it may not change at all. And now at 12 weeks, we're beginning to see a decline. But the decline at week 36 or week 52 is going to be lower than it was at week 12. It's more of a, like the tortoise and the hare phenomenon I've talked about before. Some are rapid and sustained, but they don't continue to fall like the FGF 21s and FGF 19s, or they're slow and steady. But at the end of the day, if you reach a certain threshold, potentially that is meaningful if there's been a period of time for which that's occurred. 
If we did a biopsy at four weeks, which even I might not be willing to do that, but let's say we did a biopsy at four weeks because the FIB4 had dropped or because there was an X percentage change in PDFF or because there was an X percentage change in FibroScan KPA, I think we would see something totally different than if we did the same biopsy at the end of one year with the same drop in percentage-wise of whatever NIT we're measuring. So I, I totally agree with you. I, I think, um, you know, I think the one exception to this rule that probably is worth a discussion is MRI-PDFF, because there we have shown that 12-week MRI-PDFF change of at least 30% has been linked to histopathologic improvement at week 36. We didn't biopsy. Well, we did biopsy. Now, Deferman, we did biopsy 12 weeks, and we did have MRI PDFF at 12 weeks. Maybe the issue is when is the, the right time to measure an NIT? And if you see a change, it's a meaningful change. And perhaps it depends on the NIT of question, and perhaps it depends on the mechanism of action driving the NIT change. It gets kind of complicated, I think. I think it does, and I think it reflects some maturation of our understanding of the clinical trial paradigm, of how the biomarkers are actually working, and combining that with the mechanisms. And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next week with Louise and Rachel Zayas conducting interviews and summarizing key presentations from the Fifth Global Nash Congress while you and I ask questions. I promise to do my best to conserve my voice. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.